Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've been listening to Studs, if you've learned something, if you've taken some solace in our conversations, then allow me to give you the chance to give back. Tis the season for giving, or so they say. Head over to patreon.com backslash studs and see what rewards you can reap for supporting the podcast. The link is in the show notes. No pressure. But for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help keep studs going strong. This episode of Studs is me in conversation with Jason Danver. Jason's an engineer operator at the Houston Fire Department, which I just learned is the third or fourth busiest fire department in America. After walking me through the nuts and bolts of what a firefighter does all day, in a beautiful and vulnerable way, Jason dives into how he grapples with the intensity of life and death work. And we both get emotional. We laugh a lot, too. Lots of highs and lows in this one, kids. Seems appropriate. So enjoy my roller coaster ride with the kind and the courageous Jason Danver. Jason Danver, welcome to Studs. You're an engineer operator at the Houston Fire Department. How do you describe what you do? Well, thanks for having me, Dan. I am a engineer operator. That's the title of the rank that I hold within the fire department, uh, which is one step up from firefighter rank. More or less, my job is to drive the fire truck. So it's a pretty awesome job. A boy's dream come true, but I know it's so much more than that. So we know that you and your colleagues fight fires. But can you discuss like the different titles, the different roles, and maybe just some of the different responsibilities that people have at the firehouse? Absolutely. So, so I talked a little bit about rank. We have rank structure in the Houston Fire Department. We um, start out with the rank of firefighter. And after a number of years in a rank, you're eligible for promotion. And beyond engineer is captain, senior captain, district chief, and then you get appointed positions above that to the command staff. We have ooh, roughly 3,800 firefighters in the Houston Fire Department. Whoa. So it's a, a rather large organization. It is the, it, our call volume is the third largest in the United States. So y'all are wicked busy, huh? We are. As, as a whole, we have, uh, I think, roughly 96 fire stations in the city. Uh, I want to say it's 400 and change on duty on the front lines every day. Uh, we have four shifts in the Houston Fire Department. Typically, most large cities hold a three-shift model. We hold a four-shift model. And um, my personal responsibilities are essentially that of the operation of the fire truck in terms of water supply and making sure that everything's operating properly on a day-to-day basis and obviously making sure I get my crew 
to and from the scene safely and uh, expeditiously, shall we say. Yeah, please make it expeditious. (laughs) So just to dive into some of the nuts and bolts, can you walk me through the three versus four shift schedule? Sure. We run with an uh, A, B, C, and D shift. Uh, A lot of other cities run with um, a three shift model. And they tend to run on a 24-48 schedule, 24 hours on, 48 hours off, and it repeats. We run on one, off one, on one, and then you're off anywhere from three to five days in a row. So I work 24-hour shifts whenever I'm scheduled. We start and finish our shift change at 6.30 in the morning. And depending on the week, and how the month falls. I might work three shifts a week. I might work two shifts a week. So you show up at 6.30 in the morning. And what's the first thing you do? So um, shift changes at 6.30. Uh, Professional courtesy is be there by six. In my 21 years, um, there's probably only been two occasions where I've shown up after 6 a.m. If I'm not there by 6 a.m., I consider it late. That's my personal standard. And... uh, a typical morning starts off out on the apparatus floor. You know, you drop your gear, you effectively relieve your your man or, or woman by removing their gear from the truck and setting it next to the truck. And you put your gear on the truck and then you start your apparatus uh, checkoff and you, you know, start with your personal items, you know, your air pack, is it topped off? Is it in working condition? You run through tests, motion sensor tests, and you you start from there, you know, air pack, radio, things that you're gonna you know you're gonna use in that shift, and then you go compartment by compartment and make sure everything is there and it's in working order and it's clean and it's ready to be used for the next call. What's the advantage of a twenty four hour shift? The advantages on my side is that I work um, a large number of hours in a short amount of time, which allows me to have more time, more days off. So. In any given week, I might have five days off in a row. Generally speaking, most firemen in any city, in any state, in any country, they all have multiple jobs. A lot of them are tradesmen on the side or own businesses. The benefit to the city, especially in a large and busy city like ours, is that there's fewer shift changes in a day. If we're on an eight-hour work schedule with two to three shift changes a day where we're trading trading out personnel, that creates overtime because if our shift change is at 4 p.m. and you're coming in to relieve me and I'm not present because we're out on a call, well, now they're paying two people to do the same job and they're paying, they're paying me overtime while you're sitting at the station waiting for me to arrive. So the fact that our shift change it typically occurs between 6 and 6.30 in the morning. It's not a high volume uh, call time, and that reduces the likelihood of, of overtime that the city would incur uh, for paying two people at the same time. So you get in at 6 o'clock in the morning as a professional courtesy. By 6.30, oftentimes you have that changeover of personnel. You're checking levels, you're checking gear, you're making sure everything is in tip-top shape. What are the other duties that you have when you're not out 
in the world, fighting fires and doing other things, which I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> so our day-to-day duties uh, range everything from continuing education classes to going out and doing drills, whether that be uh, just our single company because we're training our guys or making sure our guys are up to speed on all their you know, job functions and evolutions, um, whether it be we have a new rookie at the station and we have phase testing to get them through so that they can make it successfully through their probational period. A fire station is not just a fire station. It's, it's a firehouse. You live there. Somebody's living there 24-7. So, you know, we have 12 people at our station. So there's 12 people living in your house and, you know, 12 people in the house collects dirt. So, you know, there's cleanup in the morning, there's cleanup in the evening, there's cleanup after every meal. We traditionally cook in the fire station. Uh, in the Houston Fire Department, we do breakfast and dinner, hot meals, and then you're on your own for lunch. Typically, one of the trucks will go to the grocery store in the morning and buy groceries for the day. And, uh, you know, one or two of the guys will get together and prepare meals uh, for everybody on duty that day. So we do a wide variety, everything from building maintenance and upkeep, yard maintenance, apparatus maintenance, tool maintenance, uh, on top of our training and and daily online um, EMS and fire continuing education classes. So from what you just said, I want to talk about two of my favorite things. (laughs) One is food and the other is training and coaching. Uh, Let's talk about food first because I'm desperately hungry. (laughs) Talk to me about how food gets uh, shared, prepared, parceled out at the firehouse. So the number one rule in cooking in a firehouse is never lay short. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, I guess the number two thing in the fire station is they might complain about it, but they're going to eat it. Uh Um, Uh uh, When we show up to work in the morning, guys come in and they throw in their, their money for the day. Um, You're, you're either in or you're out. There's no, what are we having today? You're in or you're out. And whoever's cooking is also, you know, putting the grocery list together and whatnot. And we throw in 10 to $12 a day per person. And that pays for your hot breakfast and a hot dinner. And um, there's always enough food to go around. You know, we have a guy on the rescue truck, Wayne, that does most of the cooking and he loves Italian food and Mexican food. So we see a lot of that on our shift. Do you cook? Not so much anymore. Occasionally, I get a request for something that I've done in the past that might be, you know, one of their favorites. What is it? What is it? (laughs) It's uh, meatloaf, actually. Meatloaf. Hey. (laughs) Yeah. Meatloaf and salmon. They like, they like my meatloaf and they like my salmon. I tend to cook healthy and they like uh, meat and potatoes. So a lot of times, you know, they, they prefer Wayne over me cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so is it because you are a 20 plus year vet and have rank and seniority that you're less likely to have to cook? Or is it just because Wayne's got this jam figured out? It's mostly because Wayne's got it figured out. Uh, he likes to cook. The guys like him cooking. And so he, when he came to our station, he kind of took that by the reins and ran with it. 
you know, we're always happy to help him with whatever he needs, whether it's, you know, peeling potatoes or, or, or whatnot. Um, it just, it kind of works itself out. Cool. So we talked about food. And then the second thing that I'm very interested in is training and coaching. I have learned that firefighters do a lot of training. Can you talk to me about the type of drills and routines that you all have to do to make sure that everyone's on point from the rookies to the veterans? Sure. So the station I'm at right now, Station 11, is a, it's inside the city, it's inside the loop, but it's one of the slower stations. It's a hidden gem. So traditionally at my fire station, the only way you get a spot there, because it's all seniority-based, is if you've got some years under your belt. Uh, so most of the guys in years past that get there have you know seven to 10 years of experience because seniority dictates such. Now, over the last, I'd say, three or four years, we've, we've had some guys transfer in that have less time and less experience. So we have to do more training. And anytime we get a, a rookie, anytime we get somebody straight out of the fire academy, obviously the amount of training that we do, it goes up dramatically. It's, it's every day. It's physical training every day, pulling hose and landlines and establishing water supplies to throw in ladders to, you know, search and rescue to putting the air masks on them and blacking out their air masks. So they have no visibility and getting them to, you know, go through a building and search and follow hose lines. And, you know, the less experienced guys need more training because they just have less, less actual hands-on experience. So all of that training is for a reason. Can you talk about the types of calls that the Houston Fire Department responds to? Like which ones are most common and what types of calls do you have to get out there for? Fire departments in general in the United States have taken a shift more towards uh, EMS, um, emergency medical response calls, whether that be um, car accident related or just general uh, medical related sick calls, cardiac arrests, uh, things of that nature. So those, you know, medical calls are definitely, I would say about 70% of our call volume, but we see it all, you know, and, and I've seen a dramatic shift even, you know, since I've been in after nine 11, there was, uh, anthrax, you know, every time somebody would come across some sort of white powdery substance, we would get an anthrax call. And I don't exaggerate it when I say on our truck, we were receiving anywhere from five to 10 anthrax calls a day. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was, it was crazy. There was, there was such a fear out there. Um, our hazmat trucks were running 24 seven on anthrax calls and people get a little, they get a little excited. They're easily excited. They, they tend to panic. I remember, and this is you know, right after nine 11, and we make an anthrax call or an unknown substance at a baseball field. Now, now any rational thinking human being knows exactly what that white powdery substance is. It's chalk for the stripes on the baseball field. Right, right. But, but people call 911 for the craziest reasons, Dan. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to ask, of the hundreds of, if not thousands of calls you all got for anthrax, 
uh, did you ever have to deal with anthrax? No, not actual anthrax per se. None of them were um, positive. Mm. So thousands, thousands of calls. This is, went on for weeks. Okay, so <laughs> in in more or less normal times, if those exist anymore, you're talking 70% of your calls are medical related. What are the other 30%? It could be anything. It could be uh, check for fire, automatic alarms. You know, anytime somebody has a, a monitored, fire alarm system in their home or their business, uh, you know, and that that's monitored through a third party service. You know, we get dispatched to things of that nature. I've made train accidents. I've made train accidents where a person was actually hit by a train that didn't go well. And um, I mean, you name it, people call 911 for everything. Every year it's something new. Every year, you know, we're just kind of expected to figure it out and deal with it because we don't get training on any of this stuff. Just no way. There's not enough time in the day and there's no way to imagine that these, these things could happen, you know, and look at 2020, the year of the Rona, there was no real training or preparation for this. I mean, we have guidelines in place with communicable diseases and things of that nature, personal protective equipment, but Nobody had any idea that 2020 was going to turn out the way that it did. Yeah. Yeah, indeed not. And I don't know how one could have trained or prepared for this one. Let me ask you this question. Of the 911 calls about fire that your station receives, what percentage of those, ballpark, are actually fires versus the neighbors burning bacon and onions? Well, I'll break it down into working fires or like a fire that you could put out in, you know, say two or three minutes or four or five minutes, you know, like something that's not to the point where it's going to be an extended scene time. Um, those happen frequently, you know, the dryer catches fire, the fire's contained, we get there, we put it out, we pull the dryer out of the house. We help them with some smoke removal in the house and then we're in and out in, you know, 20 minutes. Um, those happen quite a bit. Uh, working fires, you know, happen less and less where you're actually pulling multiple, you know, hose lines off the truck where you're establishing a water supply at a fire hydrant where you're flowing, you know, hundreds and thousands of gallons of water. Those are, those are fewer and far between. Again, if you could ballpark for me, just to kind of create a picture of the work that you do, about how many fires does your team put out on a given week? Maybe three on my truck, on my engine. You know, it's not a busy part of town. We live in a geographically desirable area where the income levels are pretty high throughout most of our territory. So you've got better structures, more up-to-date, central heating, uh, so people aren't using space heaters. So it, that plays a big role in, in the types of calls that you make. Now, for the first seven years that I worked in the department, I was at the busiest station in the city, Station 28. We were the third busiest engine company in the United States, and we loved it. We loved being busy, and we had a very diverse territory. Uh, everything to the south was the Gulfton ghettos, big apartment complexes, 
struggling uh, economic area, uh, multiple families in single apartments. Everybody spoke Spanish. And then to the north, we're dealing with you know million dollar homes. So we saw pretty much everything you could see in one particular territory. And it was, it was really interesting. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot in those first seven years. So you've moved on up. You're coasting a little bit more easy, but you paid your dues and you've learned, I'm sure, a million lessons in the process. You have to see people at their most vulnerable. Oftentimes you see people on the worst day of their lives. Is that fair to say? It's very fair to say, especially as a young firefighter in the department, you want to be busy. You want to get that experience and you, you know, I'd be lying to you if, if I didn't tell you it was a rush. I, but at the same time, while you're having fun and doing what you do and doing what you've been trained to do and utilizing your skill set, um, somebody's having absolutely probably the worst day of their life. It's a double-edged sword. You want to be busy, but at the same time, it's better for everybody if, if we don't turn a wheel. So you, you mentioned the rush, and it dawned on me that I had wanted to ask you about this earlier, so I'm just going to have to ask you about it now. What drew you to the job? Was it the rush? Why did you become a firefighter? What was your path? I really liked the idea of being a first responder in some way, even at an early age. And I'd say by the time I was a junior in high school, I I knew that's what I wanted to do. I had a passion for it. Um, Of all things, I was a lifeguard, you know, throughout most of high school. I learned real quickly that I responded well in stressful situations, you know, in terms of jumping in after kids and pulling them out and, 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 CPR and first aid and those things came naturally to me and I enjoyed doing those things. Um, I'm not somebody who does well sitting behind a desk. The only way to get into the fire department is military or college. Um, And I knew at the time I didn't want to be in the military. I kind of regretted that later in life. I think I would have enjoyed the military and it would have gotten me to where I am now with a lot less debt, <laughs> but, but I knew it was something that I wanted to do. So from being a lifeguard to being a firefighter, the very nature of it means that you have people's lives in your hands. I mean, this is real life and death stuff. If you don't mind my asking, like, how does that feel? I take my job seriously. I think I'm good at my job. You have somebody's life in your hands. I, I take it seriously. You know, most days I go to work are good days. I love my job. I still love my job. Not a lot of people can go to work every day and say they love their job. I live three miles away from my fire station. I serve my community. There's been numerous times throughout the years where we've rolled up on somebody's house and, and I know the resident personally. That's that's a good feeling. And I think it's a good feeling for them too, because like you said earlier, you know, they're, they're having a bad day. They're having quite possibly the worst day of their life. And when they see somebody that they know, I'd like to think that it provides them some comfort. I'm thrilled to learn that you love your work. I love my work too. And I'm glad we can 
both uh, appreciate that and sleep well at night. Um, and look, I've had some rough days at my job. And like you, I serve my community. But however rough my days might be, <laughs> I can't help but imagine that a rough day for you is substantially more overwhelming than a rough day for me. What does a rough day look like? So um, a successful day I'll start with is any day that I can come to work and my crew and I all go home safe. Nobody ends up at the hospital or in the hospital. But a rough day uh, generally involves human suffering, you know, whether that be one of my crew members or whether it be, you know, somebody in the community, you know, it's uh, children, especially kids that sticks with you a lot. Anytime you make a connection uh, with somebody and, and, and I use that term really loosely because uh, it only, sometimes it only takes a few seconds to make a connection with somebody you know, uh, one of your previous podcasts, you had an ICU nurse and her patient connections. I mean, I, I can't imagine being a nurse or a doctor and, and dealing with long-term patient connections, whether it be a one shift of 12 hours or whether it be for weeks or months, because there's a real connection there. We're very fortunate that our patient FaceTime is short. We encounter a situation. Our job is to mitigate the situation and, and make life-saving interventions and then pass them off to EMS and EMS transports the patient and then passes them off to the hospital. So whether you're a first responder on scene on a fire truck or whether you're an EMS personnel, generally your patient face time is less than a half an hour. So there's less opportunity to make that human connection, but it, it only takes a few seconds. And the more connection you have with the person and the more suffering that person is going through uh, makes for a rougher day. If you don't mind my asking, how do you manage that level of stress and frustration? Like, it seems to me obvious that you have to, grapple with real trauma and because you're a professional and because as you said there's like something about you that can be calm and focused and effective in the heat of it all but when it's all over you're just like everyone else you're perfectly human right and you have to after that trauma you know, go on with life. So I guess I kind of wonder how you manage with that intensity and that stress. How do you, how do you manage it and how do you wind down from it? One of the things that the Houston Fire Department did a number of years ago that was, it was a really good thing. Um, and I will say, uh, even though I, I love what I do and, and, and I love the community and, and serving the community, um, 
there's not a Houston firefighter in the city that is happy with their employer or the, or the current situation with the city of Houston. But I will say one of the most positive things that the fire department has done throughout my career is establish um, psychological services for their members. And anytime we have an incident where somebody is killed or hurt, we have what is called a CISM critical incident stress management team. And any member of your crew, whether you're an officer, a chief officer, a firefighter, any member of your crew can initiate the CISM protocol and they will take your truck out of service and you go back to the fire station and the crews that made that call will, will wait and an on-call psychologist as well as members of the critical stress management team um, will show up to your fire station and they'll do a debriefing and it's completely confidential. And a lot of times it's very, it's very informal and you go around the room and essentially just most times it's just talking about what happened, what was your role and what did you do on scene? And even that little, that little bit of talking about it, you'd be surprised at how much or how helpful that is in terms of getting guys to acknowledge that what happened happened and that there is a way to deal with it and you can talk about it and it's a good thing. Unfortunately, they, the, the, the reason for the inception of our on-call psychologist was because a number of years ago, we had an alarming rate of suicide within the Houston Fire Department. We were losing twice as many firefighters to, to suicide as we were to line of duty deaths and things of that nature. It was, it was, it was crazy. I, I, we were, we were having two, three suicides a year and it, and they, they, they had to do something. And so they, they played it right. They did, they did the right thing. And it was a helpful service that they brought to the, to the department. I'm really sorry to hear that, man. That sounds like a bit much. You know, unfortunately, it's part of the job. 2020 has been, you know, a rough year for everybody. You know, it, you get tired of going to funerals for your coworkers. You know, in my career, we've buried 22 Houston firefighters. Or as a teacher, where you teach in your district, if you had buried 22 teachers just because they came to work that day. Um, and I was exposed to that pretty early three months into my career. We buried two firefighters, uh, and that died at, at the uh, McDonald's fire, uh, Kim and Lewis. I remember it like it was yesterday. And then, um, 11 months into my career, we buried, uh, Jay Yonke. He was a captain in the Houston fire department in my district. I had worked with Jay before it, it, it hits you hard. Um, and that was something that I had to deal with on my own because not only did I work with Jay and I knew Jay early in my career, on my third day at the fire station, we made a rescue and it was, it was an unusual rescue. We had a, <laughs> we had a woman who was, who was high as a kite and she was on top of a, a structure in the gallery area. And 
she decided she was going to take off all her clothes in the middle of July. And, um, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get a hand on a, on the naked lady, but, uh, (laughs) especially when it's a hundred degrees out and you're sweating like crazy. Um, and it could have gone really bad, but fortunately she was, she ended up being all right. And, uh, and it was my third day on the job and they ended up giving me this award for it. So at the medal ceremony, I was supposed to work that day. And they said, uh, you got the night off because you're going to the medal ceremony. And I was like, okay, great. And they said, are, are you going to come in tonight after the uh, award ceremony? Uh, you don't have to. And I, I said, no, I, at the time I was dating somebody and I said, no, I'm, we're going to go out and have some drinks and whatnot. And so I didn't go in and then, um, uh, I got the call the next morning that one of our guys had been killed. <sighs> Give me a sec. Yeah. Sorry, man. Sorry. So, um, yeah, I got the call the next morning and, uh, early in the morning. And so there's that remorse that, you know, you should have been there. Yeah. Yeah. That was a long time ago. That was 20 years ago. And then, you know, September, uh, Corona hit, you know, we lost three Houston firefighters to coronavirus. One of them was a good friend of mine. And then, um, we had, uh, recently in October, another friend of mine I used to work with when I was on the rescue team, he was, um, he was, he was murdered. He was an arson investigator. He was on a surveillance assignment and, um, there's a lot of details that aren't out about that yet, but he was, he was shot a bunch and it happened just down the street from our fire station. In fact, the fire station I worked at last night, uh, it was, it's about two blocks away and I drove past his memorial probably about 20 times yesterday on the way in and out of the fire station. Hmm. And that was, that was just, you know, October. So yeah, it gets, it gets old when you have to bury your coworkers just because they showed up to work. Not anything they did wrong. All right. You need a sec? Sorry. We good? No, man. No, no. It's, you it's, know, I haven't, honestly, I haven't told that story uh, about Jay. I don't think I've ever really told it that way before. You know, probably there's only a couple people really even remember the fact that I was supposed to be there. I turned into like a five alarm high rise fire. Is it like a thing that every firefighter for one reason or another, however irrational, has to deal every day with some sort of survivor's guilt and that's just part of the work? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't speak for anybody else. Um, Yeah, there's people out there, obviously, in our department and other departments that deal with that. But um, I don't deal with it every day. To be honest with you, I don't talk about what I do uh, very much. Every time we get together with friends, 
for dinner or drinks. Some folks will ask me, you know, what's going on at work? Any good stories lately? And my wife will be the first one to tell them, well, no, you know, he doesn't really talk about work at home. My wife's a flight attendant. She's got much more funny and interesting stories about people. <laughs> um, sometimes, my, you know, I bring the good stories home. You know, recently we had a little girl that was um, attacked by a dog. She ended up being fine and, you know, but she had a lot of cuts and lacerations on her face and probably about three or four weeks had gone by since the incident and, and the mom and dad brought her up to the fire station and she looked great. And that was, that was, that's the best part of my job is when you can see like, especially, you know, a cute little girl like that come back and, you know, just to visit with her. That was, that was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that. So it was I nice. bet you get a lot of that, right? Like you save lives. And I'd imagine that this little girl and her family aren't the only people who came back to the fire station to show some respect and give a little love back. You know, it, it, sometimes it, I'd say maybe it's 50-50. You know, sometimes, sometimes you never hear from people again. Uh, occasionally you'll follow up with the nurses and doctors at the hospital and just kind of ask, say, you know, Hey, we were here two days ago and we brought in this patient, uh, you know, how are they doing? But, uh, no, we really don't get a lot of people that come up to the fire station like that. So that was a really nice treat. People are ingrates, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure that there, you know, I try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm sure that there's, I'm sure that there's plenty of good reasons why they don't. You know, it could have gone the other way. Maybe, maybe, maybe the mom and dad didn't bring the daughter up to the station because they felt guilty that they left their daughter unattended with a dog. Who knows what, how people deal with their own guilt and their own grief, you know? So I don't, I don't fault them for that. There's a million reasons why people might not come up to the fire station, but, uh, but it's always nice when they do. You're a wise and generous man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well. All right. So um, your pal's name was Jay Yonke, right? Well, yeah. Jay and I weren't close friends. Uh, Jay was a, a captain. I was brand new in the department. I had just worked with him, you know, and uh, but he was a really nice guy. And, and when Jay died in that fire, we were still only staffed with three people to a fire truck. And the national standard is four. And after Jay died, there was a big push for the fourth man on the apparatus. And after Jay died, we, we got our fourth man because it was thought to have played a large role in the fact that he was not able to make it out because there was not adequate staffing at the, at the fire. That's actually something I'm really curious about and interested in. You talk about the team of three now, fortunately, the team of four on the engine. It is a bona fide team effort. There's the engineer. That person drives the pumper. And then you have people to work the hose. And then you have people who break down doors. You have a whole team of people. It really does take a beautifully orchestrated, well-communicated team effort to save the lives of citizens in danger, but also the lives of the firefighters. 
I want to know how you, as a veteran in this high-stress, high-performing work, how you approach the team nature of it. Because you got to protect yourself. You know, you have an instinct to protect yourself. And the only way to do that is to make sure you work in concert with the team. Can you talk about how that's done well? Camaraderie and having a fluid crew comes through training and repetition. And so when we go on train with the number of years that I have in and with my rank, I could kind of sit back and watch and maybe not participate in a hands-on situation, but I choose not to do that. I choose to, you know, get in there and drill with the guys and show them that not only can they do it, not only can I do it, but even though I'm considerably older, um, I can do it just as well as they can. And generally I can show them a better way to do it than how they've been doing it. Just, just based purely on experience. When I came in the fire department, it was, it was a much different, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but it was a much different time. You know, an officer would cuss you out if you did something wrong, but now things are different and, you know, it's more of a, Hey, you know, that went well, but let's try it this way because I think, I think that you'll see after you do it the way that I show you, you'll be more successful and it'll be easier for you. And it generally is. Um, it's probably a much more productive way of, of teaching and getting your point across than cursing somebody out on scene. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree. I don't know that I'm particularly nostalgic for the days of verbal assault as a means of acceptable communication. Uh, <laughs> but I have a kind of related question to that because I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest or hypothesize, and you could tell me I'm wrong, that there's probably some ego in this high-performing, high-stress job of firefighting. If you tend to agree with that. So like, despite the teamwork, which is necessary, there's ego. Part of it's self-preservation can you talk about the role of ego in the cooperation and, you know, perhaps good old fashioned friendly competition between you and your colleagues? Yeah. Um, that's absolutely an interesting way of looking at it. Ego does play a factor. Um, it's, uh, Oh, hang on. I'm sorry. That's all right. Dogs are always welcome on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, egos, egos, absolutely a contributing factor. You have to look at the demographic of my workforce. It's 98% male. It's a very physically active job. It's a very physically demanding job. Um, so it's not uncommon that everybody that you're working with was either in the military or was some sort of a, a jock in high school or college. Um, we have former NFL guys. We have 
former baseball, uh, major league baseball players and a lot of former military. So ego is, is a huge factor in, in the fire station. Um, it's a real thing. It's, is it dangerous? Yeah, it probably can be. Um, I can't recall a time when it became like a real issue. Um, it's more of an issue on the personnel side in terms of how people behave well with each other at the fire station. You know, I said earlier, it's very much a house. The, the, the people we work with, we live with these people, you know, two to three days a week. It's fair to say that a lot of Houston firefighters spend more time with their crew than their spouse. It's like family. It's like squabbling with a brother or sister. But when the, when the alarm goes off, you know, ego gets set aside and you got a job to do. And, you know, if you were not happy with one of your coworkers 20 minutes ago, you, you, when that alarm goes off, it all gets put, put aside. And that's, that's always been the standard. And I've, I can't remember if I've ever seen or experienced uh, anything different. I have two quick follow-ups about that. Sure. The first is, I wanted to know if the ego was dangerous, and I'm glad to hear that it's not, because I wonder if the ego is necessary to perform the job. I, I think it is. Um, I wouldn't consider myself an egotistical person, but I would consider myself very confident in what I do. You have to be confident. And occasionally you come across people who aren't and they struggle with certain things. I was on the rescue team for a number of years. And, you know, part of our job is ropes and high angle rescue and coming down off the side of a high rise. And there are Houston firefighters that think I'm crazy because I would even think about doing that. Traditionally, they don't have to do that. It's, it's, it's a specialized division within the fire department. Out of 4,000 men and women, there's only 60 that are trained like that. So I don't like to think of it as ego. I think of it as, as you know, confidence in oneself. And then this is my second question as it relates to that. Sure. And then I just thought of a third. You'll have to forgive me. It's all right. <laughs> so as it pertains to ego, firefighters are often dubbed heroes. I wonder how you feel about that moniker. You know, that, that term, I've never been comfortable with that term. I don't like that term. Um, uh, one could look at a firefighter as a hero. I am very uncomfortable with that. I don't like it. Um, I never have. I have a job. I have a job description. I love my job. I go to work. I do my job in the best way that I know how. That doesn't make me a hero. Um, and I think most, most, most firemen would, would agree that they view it the same way that I just stated it. But you save lives, Jason. <laughs> it's part of the job. It, uh... Now, I, I will say there, I have seen um, other guys um, do some things that I would constitute as heroic um, and, and, and for me, for me to use the term heroic or a hero, that means that they not only did their job, but they, they went above and beyond and they put their 
own personal safety and or life aside for generally for a total stranger. But I would use that word very hesitantly for somebody else as well. Fair enough. You had talked a moment ago in this broader discussion of the problem of ego around the job about, you know, a bunch of former high-performing baseball players and football players, uh, military people, and living in a house with them. I have a vision of a firehouse, and <laughs> I don't know whether I hope that this vision is accurate <laughs> or if it's not. But I do have a vision of a lot of tomfoolery shenanigans and jackassery. Is the firehouse a fun place to be sometimes? It, it absolutely is. Every shift has their own personality. Um, I saw it a lot more in the first 10 years in the department because I was at much busier stations. You know, you have to take into account you're at a busy station. The people that are there, they want to be there. They're high performers. They're high energy. They're generally young. And anytime you get that category of a person in a male-dominated surrounding, you're going to get a lot of shenanigans. And, um, and, you know, the shenanigans, it's a good way to deal with the work stress. You know, it's, I hate to say it, but... You know, we talked about human suffering earlier. It's pretty common that we'll get in the fire truck leaving the scene and somebody's making very dark humor about something that just happened. And that's a way of coping. And we understand it. We know it exists, but it exists amongst us. If somebody were to overhear some of the things that were said, they wouldn't be able to understand or grasp the situation and it, it, and it would come across horribly, but that's, that's not the case. And that's not, you know, you, you would be taking something out of context. It's, it's a way of dealing with stress, you know, and, and, and the old saying, if you, if, if you can't laugh, you're going to cry. And then, and then you get the ego that kicks in, right. And you're not going to cry in front of your coworkers. So you're going to make, you're going to make a joke. Uh, is your dog kicking the can back there? Yeah, I'm sorry. They just got fed, so that should go away. They're, they're done with that. All right. We're about to drive this engine into the station here. <laughs> we'll get you back to your squad over there in no time at all. Oh, no, no worries. So, Jason, you work on the team. You're a 20-year vet. You're a real team leader. And your work, as much as anyone's, is riddled with highs and lows, some of the highest highs, and I'm afraid some of the lowest lows. We here at the Studs podcast, well, we love stories, and I'm hoping you might be able to tell me the stories of one professional triumph and one professional failure. Maybe start with the failure so that we can end on a note of triumph. 
So in, in terms of dealing with failure at work, you know, the hardest part uh, of being a first responder and in terms of failure is, is the loss, uh, loss of a life, um, whether that be a coworker or a patient, um, regret, you know, should I have been there? What should I have done differently? What did I do wrong? Um, unfortunately, the nature of my job is that people die. Kids die and coworkers and friends die. I mean, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Early in my career um, at the first station, 28, I was assigned to, we had um, uh, a little girl. I forget how old she was. Um, she was a toddler and her name was Abby and we responded to her home for a seizure call and you know we were able to mitigate the situation and she recovered well and it's another example of how nice of a treat it was because the family brought her up to the fire station about a week later and you know they had made some cookies and brought them to us and she she looked like a totally different kid you know there was this lifeless you know child who you know was having actively seizing and you know, we only had a few minutes with her before we passed her off to EMS, but then she came up to the station a week later and she was full of life. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was great. Um, and then probably only a month or two later, we made the, the same address and I, I remembered the address because uh, it's not a street that we go down regularly. So I knew exactly the house it was, and it was for a seizure call. Um, and it was, it was Abby. Um, unfortunately, this time she had had a seizure in the bathtub Ugh. and she had drowned. No. And that, I mean, that was, that was a long time ago, you know, but I remember it like it was yesterday. So, you know, in, in that one particular instance, you're dealing with, you know, a good success and a, and a horrible failure, even though ultimately I, I know there wasn't anything that anybody on my crew did wrong. Um, it's just, it's just that part of, you know, loss of life that I talk about. It's, it's, it's part of the job. Does it invariably feel like your failure, even though it's overwhelmingly clear that it's not your fault? No, not in that particular situation. Okay, good. You know, I'm sure her parents dealt with a lot of guilt on that, but it wasn't their fault either. I mean, they're going to probably beat themselves up about it today. You know, it, it was an unfortunate situation that occurred, and I don't think anybody could have really done anything about it. And it happened very quickly. Um, so yeah, man, it, you know, is, it is what it, it is. is. So help a brother out. Give me some success. <laughs> I knew I was doing this podcast with you and I, I thought about it and I, I, I didn't have to think very hard about it. My biggest success was uh, a lady by the name of Joanne Moore. 
and uh, Joanne and I still communicate. She's actually, she lives in the UK, probably back in 2004, 2005, she and a coworker were doing business in the United States in Houston. And she was producing a show called Animal Cops Houston for the Discovery Channel. And she was on that crew in some capacity. And, and we had gotten back to the fire station from a previous call. We had just gotten in. And the, the tones went off for an auto pedestrian accident. And um, we, were, we were right next to the apparatus. We had a very quick response. And I remember my captain, they got there in the fire truck. I was, I was driving the ambulance at the time. And, and when we rolled up, I got out of the ambulance and there were bodies in the street and a car had run up onto the sidewalk and run over several people. And she happened to be one of those ladies. And I looked at my captain, Eddie Havlis, and I said, which one's the worst? And he pointed to Joe and I went over to Joe and she was a mess. She was horrible. And I remember it like it was yesterday because she had been hit so hard by the car that she'd been knocked out of her boots. Her boots were 20 feet away. It kind of takes you back. You know, you're like, wow. I mean, I mean, she had been hit incredibly hard by this car and she had an avulsion on her head, her, her, the skin over the, over the scalp of her head, it had been peeled back. It almost looked like she had been scalped. And we loaded her up in the back of the ambulance and she stopped breathing on us. And on a typical traumatic call like that, once they stop breathing, they don't, you don't, you don't get them back. And amazingly enough, we got her back and route to, to the hospital. And traditionally I, in that particular position as a driver operator, um, I would be driving the ambulance. But I remember making the decision that I was going to ride in the back because I had more experience than the person that was riding in the back. Hmm. And so it was on me. And um, I don't remember how many other medics I had in the back with me, if any, but I, I know there was at least one other guy there you know, we did our job that night. We got her to the hospital, uh, alive. And, uh, a few days later I went back to the hospital with another patient and I inquired about, you know, how she was doing and she was in shock trauma ICU. And I went up and I, I remember asking the nurse behind the desk, you know, how she was doing. And she said, well, why don't, you know, why don't you speak with her, her family, her, her, father is sitting right behind you. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I just, I'm just give me some. And, and he had overheard the conversation and he came over and he just gave me a hug. Hmm. And he, cause he had flown in from uh, London and I got an update and she was doing well and she was, she was going to survive. And um, probably about six months later, I got a phone call from a, a friend of mine who's a Houston police officer and his father's a very high profile attorney here in Houston. And he says, Hey man, any chance you can track down the medics that may have taken this lady to the hospital. And he gave me her name and told me what had happened. I said, yeah, I was the guy. And he, <laughs> it was a small world. He said, great. She's uh, she's, he says, my dad's representing her in, 
in her legal case and they want to stop by the fire station see you guys tonight and so we had a little reunion and it was nice and every time she comes to the states she makes it a point to to come by and see me that my friend is a smashing success i'll bet when you all have a chance to see each other it's something unique huh it is it is she's genuinely a very very outgoing uh she's just a really nice person and uh yeah we keep in contact i hear from her a couple times a year so she's doing well and um and that's one of the benefits of my job he's not a hero but he saves lives right (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome hey jason i can't let you go without giving you a chance to recommend a guest i should pursue you have definitely earned it by opening up and being vulnerable and sharing stories. So if you want the opportunity, I'd like to give you a chance to recommend a guest. This could either be a specific person or just a profession you would want to learn more about. Anyone you want to hear from on the Studs pod? I think I'd like to stick with somebody that maybe you know. Richie Schwartz. I know he does a lot of, do you remember Richie Schwartz from high school? Oh, just finished watching uh, season one of his newest show on Netflix. <laughs> you think, you think I could suck him on? I think you could. Um, you know, I haven't seen Richie in a long time. He and I grew up together playing baseball when we were very young. And then, you know, we knew each other all the way through high school. Uh, his dad, was one of my uh, baseball coaches and uh, he's just an all around good person. And I'm sure he's full of really good stories, especially uh, doing what he does for a living. I I think he'd be a great interview. Well, since he was on my basketball team, the Lakers, of course, uh, (laughs) we were uh, the Lakers at the apex of the, uh, the LA Lakers, the real LA Lakers, like the Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like their, like, and I called myself Kareem Abdul-Lazar, uh, <laughs> which I always thought was charming. And um, we were we were on a, you know, uh, a 10-year-old basketball team called the Lakers. But we were like, like the bad news bears without the happy ending. We were not the winningest team in Park District basketball. (laughs) So it makes perfect sense that I will do everything in my power to honor you, to honor your work, and to uh, honor my own curiosity and yours to get Richie Schwartz on the podcast. And uh, we'll see if we can't dupe him into it. Jason Danver, it has been such a pleasure to spend some time with you and to learn about you and your work and how you engage with your work. And I'm grateful for what you do. You risk life and limb to protect the members of your community. And it's clear as day that there's something noble in that. It's honorable. And it's been my honor to spend some time with you and to learn about your work. Thank you for being on the podcast. Dan, thanks for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I've, I've enjoyed listening to every episode of your podcast. I'm, I think I have two more to get caught up on randomly, but uh, I'm flattered that you asked me to be a part of it. Well, there you have it, my friends. My roller coaster ride with Jason Danver. Now that, 
That is a solid fella. Please subscribe. Leave a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me. Head over to patreon.com backslash studs. Happy holidays, y'all. Love you, fools. Please take care of yourselves. I'll catch you next time.